Thank you, music team, for leading us in song and worship as we gather together and praise our God. Uh, It's good to gather together with you this morning as uh, we share from God's Word, uh, as we're challenged by God's Word, as we're changed by God's Word. Uh, Let me pray for us as we get into this. Heavenly Father, may we stand in awe of you and who you are, of your holiness, God, your majesty, of your power. As we read from your word this morning, God, may we recognize that your word is truth and may we see it rightly as that. Lord, grant us a hunger and a passion to know your truth, God, and to live it out. Lord, guide us in wisdom and understanding that we would know the meaning of this text and how it points us to you and who you are and how it points us to Christ and our salvation in him. Lord, increase our love for you and for one another as your church, God, as we reflect you. Lord, help us to apply uh, this passage to our lives today, that we would be challenged, that we'd be changed by your word through the working of your Holy Spirit, and that we would be obedient followers of Christ. Lord, help me to preach your word with boldness and gentleness, that you will be centered, that you will be glorified as you continue to save and sanctify your people. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you want to turn with me this morning to Zephaniah 2, uh, we're going to be going all the way from Zephaniah 2 to Zephaniah 3, 1 to 7. So it's quite a long passage, uh, but if you want to turn there, that's where we're going to be reading from this morning. So I'll give you a chance to turn there. I know it always takes a little bit to find that. <clears throat> so let me read this story from Zephaniah 2. It says, Gather together, yes, gather. O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord. All you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you. O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and the folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes." I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and may boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall possess them. This shall be their law in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword, 
And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold. For her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely. That said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by hisses and shakes his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. The word of the Lord. So I want to start off this morning by asking a question to you. Uh, What does true repentance look like? So maybe repentance is a word you're familiar with, especially if you grew up in the church or uh, maybe you're newer to church and to faith, and it's not uh, as common of a word, one that you would use in your vocabulary very often. Um, repentance has really invaded my life recently. And I, I've always been in the church my whole life, hearing from the Bible and God's commands, knowing that our only hope is in Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, and He rose again, and that we were to repent and believe. Now, I, I think I had the belief part down, right? I believed these things that I was told. I believed uh, what I read from the Bible. But the repentance didn't come as easily, or maybe I just didn't quite understand that concept of repentance when it comes to the Christian life. I repented when I first accepted Christ, but then after that, it didn't happen as often or really at all. And so my belief in my repentance... I found they actually really go hand in hand. When it comes to Christ, our belief in Christ should lead us to repentance, and our repentance shows shows and strengthens our belief as we rest in Christ. But I know in my own life, and perhaps in your own as well, we can easily become comfortable or complacent, thinking we don't really need to come to God in repentance. And those who are saved kind of become comfortable in our conversion. You know, I've been saved, I believe in Christ. I'm forgiven, so I'm good to go, and that's that. The book of Zephaniah, the song that's written, centers around this verse that we actually have read already in chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. And so I wonder if as a church, we often look like this fellow here, if you want to put that picture up. Now, this is a real picture. You know, I might not be able to see him very well, but that orange shirt is a guy mowing his lawn, and in behind him, that's a tornado. 
And so this is, a, this is actually a real picture from uh, the place that I went to school in, in Three Hills. Uh, a few summers back, they had a tornado, and this guy actually became famous. Uh, he, like, it was all over uh, the world. It became a viral thing. Uh, they even have in their little town parade, he has a little float that he goes on. He's called the, the, the mower man. So um, it's quite funny because uh, I think it gives us a good picture of what um, uh, the, the, the region of Judah was going through, and I think also what we go to, uh, through as a church sometimes. Uh, previously in Zephaniah, we see this warning of the judgment to befall not on those other nations around, but on God's people in Judah due to their idolatry, due to their complacency. And so we've heard that there's a call to revere God and giving the detailed reasons why he is to be revered. And so in Judah, the place which Yahweh was to reside, they seemed content with the status of being God's people, but not the responsibility or the trust or repentance needed to continue to be and represent as God's people. And so in chapter 2, we then see an urgent call of warning from Zephaniah to respond to this punishment awaiting them. And that response is to repent and seek again the Lord in righteousness and humility. And so if we see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, we can see this. uh, It says, Gather together, yes, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. And so Zephaniah begins with some urgent instruction. You can see his urgency that he has uh, to God's righteous remnant to gather themselves together. This word for gather in Hebrew often uh, refers to the collecting of the good and desirable straw or sticks together to avoid being thrown away uh, with the useless ones that are then burned up. And so we see this call to gather is actually a call to repent to humble oneself before God and to recognize the sin in their life and that they're deserving of this punishment uh, that we see that comes next. They have this complacent attitude that God will uh, do, nor do good nor bad to them, and it leads to injustice, becoming self-satisfied and pleased with themselves and what they have obtained in their own strength and their own power. They regularly dismiss their own faults that they have. In the middle of pronouncing uh, his promised judgment and threatening to sweep away Judah and the nations, we see God gives an opportunity for repentance. And we see both God's righteous judgment, but also his patience and his mercy with his people. We need to recognize that the anger of the Lord is about to come upon the judged. A burning anger of wrath and destruction God does not take sin lightly. But before the day passes away, God calls the shameless nation to repent. To repent before it's too late, to avoid the coming wrath. We can see that God remains faithful and patient, offering a warning and a way to be safe from destruction. This is a pretty loud, in-your-face warning. There to heed it while there is still time. It begs the question how we react to our own need for repentance and correction. When the warning comes, when that alarm goes off, how do we react? We need to turn around before it's too late. Zephaniah is really saying, wake up! 
how long are you going to sit there in your own rebellion? You're the people of God. You're to be reflecting Him. You're to be His image here on earth, showing the other nations, being a light to them. But there's wickedness and jealousy, injustice, evil, disunity, and disloyalty. And they dismiss God's intervention, whether that is to save them or destroy them, because they see no need for either. And so Zephaniah expresses that, it's, that that's not the case. They were not longing for God, and they have turned from God, and only through the gathering together before God will there be any possibility for deliverance. Therefore, there is this urgency felt to act quickly, to wake up, because the day of the Lord, of his anger towards the unrepentant, is close at hand. And so Zephaniah calls them to gather. But the gathering is actually tied to a deeper purpose. Out of repentance, together they are to seek the Lord. And so as we continue in verse 3, we see what this gathering is to produce and to lead to. It says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And so we see an urgent call to seek the Lord and how we are to do that. This gathering is a call for them to seek the Lord together. You can see this contrast between that complacent attitude of those from chapter 1 who rebel and turn from God to those of God's righteous remnant who he calls to return to him, to gather in repentance and together seek him in both humility and righteousness. Since they've not followed the Lord or inquired of him, he pinpoints what they must do. Repentance not only admits wrong and requests forgiveness, it also departs from those former actions to do what is right. It replaces those former actions to what God is calling us to, and it's the work of God in our life that produces those things. And Zephaniah is saying, you're just standing there. Uh, you're not... And, They're not actively seeking God. I'd like to point out also at the end of verse 3 that it says, perhaps you may be hidden. And that might irk a little bit us trying to understand what that means exactly. Perhaps you may be saved. But when we look at uh, these prophetic writings, um, unlike in Amos 5.6, Uh, where it says, Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph. Um, We see a perhaps. So it's not a do this and this will happen. It's do this and perhaps. What we often see in these prophetic writings is actually a mixture of near and future events. And so Zephaniah is pointing to both the destruction of Jerusalem and the nations, as well as the final judgment in which all the world will be judged. And so there is no guarantee that even the righteous would not face the coming calamity of the Babylonian exile that we know comes later on. And so this is not to say that they will not be saved eternally, but in the there and now, calamity could still befall them due to an unrighteous nation, which they were in proximity of. And don't we see that in our world today even? There is suffering in our world. And even if we are walking in faith and in righteousness, there is still destruction that befalls us. There's still hurt. There's still pain. There's still loss. And there's still suffering. But God is calling them to look ahead at that final judgment, to heed that warning, to heed that call, and to seek the Lord. 
recognizing that their hope for eternal salvation is in God and God alone. And so he calls them to humility. And so recognizing our deep need for God and his forgiveness, not by our own works, uh, but the broken in spirit, those who see their neediness and put their dependence on God for who else is able to save them but God alone. And so if we understand repentance as the reorientation of our entire self to God, to rightfully reflect him, then humility really has to be a root of that repentance. Because why else would you come and repent to God if you don't see that need for it, if you aren't humbling yourself before that? Uh, but Ephesians 2.8 points us to this. It says, For by the grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. And so another way you can think of humility is being broken in spirit. Um, our worship class is based off of a book called Worship Matters, which is written by uh, Bob Coughlin. And it's been really insightful uh, and convicting of my own pride and dependence on self and often the lack of humility in my life, uh, not just in church settings, but in life in general. And so one part in that book that really hit me was when Bob was expressing a time in his life that he just felt hopelessness. You know, who's ever felt hopeless before? Probably all of us, right? It's not a fun place to be. It's a pretty tough place to be. And he was expressing to his pastor friend of his hopelessness that he had been feeling daily. And his friend uh, gave him this advice, although he thought his friend was going to say, you know, hang in there, you'll, you'll get better, things will be fine, you know. His friend actually said, I don't think you're hopeless enough. If you're really hopeless, you'd stop trusting in yourself and what you can do and start trusting in what Jesus accomplished for you at the cross. And that just, that hit me, and that hit Bob, and that began a journey of him to really break the pride in his own life. And looking back, he admits that he really was trusting in himself, in his own abilities, not just on the stage, but in life. There were idols in his life, and God was breaking them. And so his hope was depleting because his hope was in those idols, but when we rest in God, we can put our hope in him. And it points us to the gospel. We are called to see God by the means in which he can be found, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ, who was crucified on the cross for, the sin, for our sin, and he was buried and then raised again from the dead as a stamp of approval that God's wrath poured out on our sins was satisfied. And he offers the only way, which is through Christ, a gift of forgiveness and eternal life to all those who repent and turn from their sins and believe that Christ died for them. The gospel is so good, and it should fill us with such joy of who God is and what he has done, that by the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and sanctifying us, that uh, we would not rest on our own works, but have humility and to recognize that God calls us, God saves us, God justifies us, and he sanctifies us to live as true image bearers of him, and that we should share this good, good news with others. But how easily can our own pride crowd our minds and push out that humility that we have? Steering us from repentance, steering us from seeking God. And so God will use many means in our life to break that pride in us, because with it we will not seek Him, but we'll seek self. 
will not see our need for the cross because it's a thing that can break us to the point where we realize we are in an ever-present need for God and his grace. It is a daily, every second need of his grace and his mercy in our life. And that is where our hope comes from. As we look forward to that day in Christ's return and we will be with glory with God forever. And we are to worship him and praise him, not just in those broken times, but every second of every day. And so God is calling them uh, from self-exaltation to God-exaltation. He is calling them to be joyous in him. And whether in a good time or in a bad time, a time of suffering, we are to be humbled and God is to be glorified. And so we also see that God is calling them to seek righteousness. Our humility and resting in Christ, our turning from self, should lead to a fruit of righteousness. So if humility is one of those roots of repentance, out of that should lead to a fruit of righteousness in our life. Human righteousness comes out when we rightfully reflect God in obedience to how he calls us to live our life. When we have a right theology of God that he is sovereign and holy, that he calls and he justifies, that he saves and he sanctifies us, all the more we should see our need to be humble and to humble ourselves before him if we are to walk in righteousness. Because as we even heard today in the family worship, there's no one that does good. We've all sinned. None of us is perfect. And so all the more we see the need to seek the Lord together in righteousness as his church, to gather together, to encourage one another, to point each other to Christ, to God's word, to his truth, to show his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his justice, his kindness, and his patience. Those fruits should come out in our life. Well, they won't come out if we're not seeking the Lord in humility, if we're not repentant, if we don't see the need to change how we are living. And so we see in 2 Peter three eleven to 12, it says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the God and speed its coming. That day will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. That day is coming. And Zephaniah points to God, displaying his rule, not just over Judah, but all nations, that all who are unrighteous will meet the desolation. In the day of the Lord, there will be complete destruction. And so as we continue on in Zephaniah, what we see is consequences of not obeying this urgent call that Zephaniah is giving. Zephaniah has established God as as the judge that will come, not just now on Judah, but the surrounding nations and in time the whole world. All are being subject to God's divine judgment and their gods will crumble and bow to the only true God, Yahweh. It's like a, a judgment compass that Zephaniah makes, and it's pointing in all directions with Judah as that center. And it's a warning to Judah, to God's people, that this judgment is close to home. Therefore, they should patiently seek the Lord together. 
And so within these fates of the rebels of the other nations, we also see God's provision and care throughout as he will restore his righteous remnant as they wait. And so first, Zephaniah directs his attention to the coast of Canaan, the Philistines. And so although Zephaniah makes no mention of uh, Philistia's sins, we know from other minor prophets like Amos that there are specific sins that were against them. Uh, in Amos 1.6 it says, Because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. And so we see that they enslaved a whole people. You know, in that time, it was actually custom that soldiers in battle could be taken as slaves. But the Philistines actually took it a step farther and enslaved whole populations. They took soldiers, civilians, men and women, adults and children, and not just as their own slaves, but to actually sell and to make profit. And so the connection is clear that God calls Judah to righteousness because we can see in the surrounding nations, in this case Philistia, the injustice done unto others and how Judah's own injustice distorts the image of who God is. Judah was to reflect God and not be like the other nations. And so what we see is that with Philistia, what they did to enslave and plunder the populations, we then see is the very thing, uh, the very destruction that is then to be uh, put on them, which is their own population being completely wiped out. In verse 5 of Zephaniah 2, we see, I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. The word of the Lord is against them, and the judgment will befall. God will restore the land to his remnant and their fortunes, which we can see God's care and mindfulness and redemption towards those whom he calls and whom he saves, who walk patiently with him in obedience. And we see that there will be pastures and meadows where shepherds will uh, shepherd their flocks. And it's a picture to us and to them, a picture of rest with their shepherd king, with Christ, a place of peace. Zephaniah then moves on uh, in verses 8 to 11, focusing on the Moabites and the Ammonites. And so they uh, were, were convicted of rejecting his people and taunting to overtake their land. We see the internal living God avenges his people. Therefore God will utterly destroy their enemies' land like he did Sodom and Gomorrah which if we know uh, the biblical history, Moab or the Moabites and Ben-Ami, the Ammonites, were the sons of Lot. And so Lot uh, is the forefather of these people. And if we know Lot, he, was, uh, he experienced the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so these people know of that destruction. They know what Zephaniah is talking about. In that time of Abraham, when God sent fire down on those cities and they were completely wiped out. Turned into a wasteland. And so the pride of the Moabites and the Ammonites would be their destruction. The land they tried to take would end in a destruction they knew all too well. Again, we see God's restoration and care towards his people who remained humble and righteous amidst the taunts. The Lord does not take sin lightly, and he will show his righteous anger to those who walk by their own pride. God's awesomeness 
will reign and God will be feared and revered. I love that verse, uh, verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them. What a picture that is of our God. The phrase will famish points to the fact that God's victory is certain, that, it's already, that, it's, that he has already overcome. And it's a call to Judah to put their pride in God and God alone, who makes all bow down. We then see that Zephaniah moves on to the Cushites. So we see Cush or, or Ethiopia, uh, which doesn't get a mention of a sin in particular. Uh, although if you look back in Isaiah 18, uh, they were, they're known as being very aggressive and feared. And Israel, in fact, would look to them rather than God for help. They put their hope in another nation as opposed to their own God. And so we recognize the ownership of God, saying, by my sword. It is by God's hand alone that these people will see demise. This mention is also expressing the extent of God's judgment, as Cush is south of Judah. And so you're seeing how God's judgment is going out, right? God's reign is not limited. It is over the entire world. And so God is bringing together his kingdom and his people Lastly, we see Assyria proudly rejecting God. Their buildings of grandeur and security that they had, we see will be left in ruin in verse 13. Nineveh, which we know from the book of Jonah, uh, the capital of of Syria, was the center of human power. We can see that now animals would inhabit that place. No more would there be inhabitants in that city. The grandeur buildings will be knocked down and destroyed. And so God uprooted their false security that they had due to their own pride, announcing what we know as the original sin of Adam and Eve. I am, and there is no one else. But we see that Onlookers will look in horror and awe at the, their destruction that, though, that does befall them, that we know comes in history. And so we see that God puts his leadership, his ownership, his judgment on the nations. And lastly, he points to Jerusalem. For the defilement and their rebellion. And so the last and probably strongest reason for Judah to heed this call to seek the Lord is in the beginning of chapter 3, when the judgment comes home. The woe in verse 1 echoes the same woe in verse 2-5, showing that the judgment does indeed include God's people themselves. Jerusalem has been entangled with the ways of her vain and prideful neighbors, adopting their ways and their gods and ultimately rebelling God and defiling themselves. And so we see four faults in verse 2 of chapter 3. They do not listen, and so therefore they do not accept correction. And then we see that they do not trust in the Lord, and so they do not draw near to a God that they do not trust. We see how the leaders themselves are corrupt and vile, 
how they cause injustice to their own people. Officials, judges, prophets, and priests, all, all those who you'd think that you could trust in, all doing the opposite of what they're called. And we see those who are called to be God's people no different from the surrounding nations. Zephaniah was calling out those who were in Judah to heed the call before it's too late. And what more excuse could they have? What could they say against God? We see in chapter 3, verses 5 and 7, that God basically hands them a resume and says, look who I am and what I have done. I have been faithful. I have remained just. I've cut off the nations and their battlements are in ruin. I've laid waste their streets. Surely they will fear me. Surely my people will fear me as their God. Yet we see that they still hold on to their pride and refuse to fear God. And so these people were called to reflect God, pure and undefiled, just and holy, all through their obedience to Him, to be humble, to be righteous. And they were being judged for being, so they were being judged for being God's people externally, having that title as God's people. But they didn't have that internally, it didn't change their hearts. And this should echo strongly for those who are saved to ask God to check our own hearts, to search ourselves. Because we know that showing up that, at church doesn't make you saved. Reading your Bible, praying to God doesn't make you saved. Baptism doesn't save you. All of this is a false gospel. If we are looking for salvation and forgiveness for our sins, it cannot be found anywhere in ourselves but in Christ and Christ alone and what he has done for us. He was crucified on the cross for our sin. He was buried and raised again from the dead. God's wrath was poured out on our sins and it was satisfied. And he offers the only way through him a gift of forgiveness and eternal life to all those who repent and turn from their sins and believe that Christ truly died for them and rose again. And so what does this call us to? What does this turn us to? There is to be an immediate outpouring of wrath in the invasion of Babylon, but there also is a final judgment that is coming. And the warning is for all those who heed the call, nations and God's people, for what is to come. So Judah does not heed this urgent call, which we can see later on. They're led into exile to Babylonia in uh, 597 BC. And Jerusalem was destroyed entirely 10 years later in 587 BC. And God takes sin seriously. And his warning and call is there for you and for me. And so what I hope we can see out of this is that we are to repent and seek the Lord in Christ with humility and obedience as the only hope for salvation. For the day of God's righteous judgment will befall on all those who don't. And so it causes us to ask some questions to ourselves. The first being, 
Are we repentant? There's an important and deep need for repentance in our life, personally and as a church. To heed the warning, to seek after God, to rest in the gospel and Christ alone. God is a God of mercy and compassion who desires that humanity enter into a right relationship with him. Yet there is an urgency to his call. We must repent before the coming judgment. God's desire is that his people may seek the Lord while he may be found, and to call upon his name while he is near, as we see in Isaiah 55, verse 6. Do we preach the gospel to ourselves every day? recognizing that our only hope is in him and not in what we do? Do we heed the warning? And does that warning then impassion our joy and our uh, command to go and tell others of Christ and what he has done? God is judge and will judge the whole world, and it should support the foundation of our evangelism. There is a warning, there is a call to repent and believe. And do we share that with people? To seek Christ as our only hope, because it is good news and there is forgiveness. Another question that we can ask is, are we seeking the Lord and humility in righteousness when we gather together? Why do we gather together? What are we seeking after when we come to church? Is it God's glory or is it something else? And so when we understand our worship to him is first only acceptable in Christ, and it's only done by the Holy Spirit's work in us, how can we come together with our own will or agenda in mind? I hope our reason to gather is not to just hang out with our friends, or to just sing some songs, or to just check a box off a list. Because a church is to gather together in humility and righteousness in Christ by the Holy Spirit to worship and give glory to God as we reflect and remind ourselves and one another of who he is and what he has done. And that continues out of this building into our daily lives. And so I think, thinking God, you know, sometimes we can become complacent or cynical or prideful thinking that God hasn't done anything so he won't fix it now? Or do we see ourselves as God's people and don't think that we need to repent? I pray that we look to Zephaniah 2 and verse, uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and we see this need to repent and seek the Lord in Christ with humility and obedience as our only hope for salvation because God's judgment will befall on all those who don't. And so it's no coincidence that this passage falls on the weekend of Thanksgiving. As we are faced with God's wrath and judgment against sin and rebellion, and rightly so, as a creator and king of this world, we are, we are to meet this with humility and repentance before God. Yet even more, we should meet it with an overwhelming joy and gratefulness. The promise of God to us in Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross. Let us as a church rest in the Savior as we then wait for the glorious promise of God to end evil. Let me pray. Heavenly Father God,
we've come face to face with you and who you are. We recognize that you are God of justice. God, and you will put an end to evil. You will put an end to sin. And you will rightfully judge it so. But God, we thank you for that promise of Christ. And that there is hope and there is opportunity to repent and believe and to walk in humility and obedience to what you have called us to. But God, that opportunity won't last. You will return and there will be a final judgment. And so God, I pray that the people here will heed that call, whether they have put their trust in you, God, or if they have never heard the gospel before. May they heed this warning, for it is to both of us. God, as your church, may we repent daily and ask for your help as we walked according to what you have called us to by your word. And Father God, if there are those who do not know you, may this be a day that they can come to you in repentance and belief that Christ died for them, that there is hope in Christ to live eternally with you through the forgiveness of their sins in Christ's death on the cross and resurrection. God, help us to be the church that you call us to. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.